Did you know that one of the most important people in the civil rights movement was an openly gay black man? Hi friends, my name is Joe Bushy and this is Be Gay, Make History, a history podcast focused on the LGBTQ community. And this week, we are focusing on the inspirational life of Bayard Rustin. When we talk about the history and the legacy of Bayard Rustin's life, he's often described as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s right-hand man, especially during the March on Washington and the events before it. And it is correct that he was Dr. King's right-hand man, but the rest of his life and the importance he had in history gets left out of the discussion. In my opinion, it kind of reduces him to that single monumental day and leaves everything else out of his story. Now, he did have a very large sway on Dr. Martin Luther King and the direction that the civil rights movement would go. Rustin is one of the two people who talked Dr. King into going the nonviolent route for protesting. That wouldn't happen until 1956 when the two met before the Montgomery bus boycott. But Rustin's views on nonviolent protesting and activism were solidified in his upbringing. Rustin was born in March of 1912 in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and it would be his grandparents, Julia and Yonifer Rustin, that would raise him. He was actually raised to believe that his mother Florence was actually his older sister. I assume this is because at the time Florence was 16 when he was born, and a teen mother at this time in the world would have been a very bad thing. His grandmother Julia was a member of the Religious Society of Friends, or also known as the Quakers. This Protestant Christian religion focused on peace, equality, community, and the dedication to Christ through the spiritualization of human relations. From what I can tell from my reading, this last part was a means of strengthening your bonds within your family community and the world generally strengthened your connection to Christ. Now, that is just my interpretation of what that meant, but take it with a grain of salt because I am not religious myself. These Quaker ideals would stay with Rustin along with the influence of his grandmother's activism. She was a member of the NAACP, or the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. She would often host their members of leadership in her spacious home, and this would mean that Rustin would be influenced by their beliefs and their thoughts and take that influence as he grew up. The beginning of his public activism would not start until his college years. He began his college career in 1932 when he accepted a music scholarship to the Wilberforce College. He actually went on to be a very accomplished tenor. Now, he would eventually be expelled from Wilberforce for his activism in 1936 when he organized a strike. After being expelled from Wilberforce, he would soon attend the Cheney State Teachers College with another scholarship in music. In 1937, he would move from Pennsylvania to Harlem in New York City and he would attend the City College of New York. The year prior to this, while he was between Wilberforce and Cheney State, he would join the Young Communist League. It was a decision that would be used against him to attack his credibility for the rest of his life. Now, throughout his life, he fought for equality and justice on many different causes, But that streak would begin with the Young Communist League. Now, if you're an American, you may have an unintentional flinch that happens when you hear the word communism. I know that I have the same reaction, and that can be traced back to the Cold War, McCarthyism, the Second Red Scare, and the Lavender Scare, which is a whole thing we're going to be discussing in another episode. It is important to note that Rustin joined the Young Communist League before the Red Scare happened. 
And he joined the Young Communist League because at the time, the communists were actively fighting for racial justice within the United States. Rustin would remain an active member until 1941, when Germany invaded the USSR, and the party's focus shifted from racial justice to pressuring the United States to go to war. With his Quaker upbringing, Rustin was adamantly anti-war. This, with a host of other things, was the main reason he left the Young Communist Party. It would be after leaving the Young Communist League that he would become the most active in his fight for equality and nonviolent protesting. He did so much from 1941 to 1956 that I'm probably just going to list off most of what he did so that you can research it yourself later if you're interested, but I'm going to touch on the most important things that he did in that time frame. In 1941, he would join the socialist group the Fellowship of Reconciliation, where he would work as the youth organizer alongside his future mentors, Philip Rudolph and A.J. Must. In this role in 1941, he would help organize the March on Washington of 1941. This march didn't end up taking place. Uh, I would suggest looking up more on that topic uh, for the reasons why. At the same time, he would co-found CORE, or the Congress of Racial Equality. It was said in some of the reading that he also traveled to California to fight for the rights of the Japanese Americans that were imprisoned in the internment camps trying to protect their property and livelihood. In that reading, it was mentioned that there is no solidified date as to when he did this, and the Wikipedia article also noted that it needed more research to confirm this. In 1942, he would become a pioneer in the idea of the Freedom Riders. Now, we'll talk about this more later, but the Freedom Riders were black citizens who would sit in the front of buses in Jim Crow South to test out the Supreme Court's decision to desegregate interstate travel. In this first ride that would be the catalyst to the Freedom Riders, Rustin would get on a bus in Louisville, Kentucky uh, that was headed for Nashville, Tennessee. He chose a seat in the second row and would refuse to get up when the bus drivers would request that he moved to the back of the bus so that a white person could take his spot. And he almost made it to Nashville, but the bus was stopped 13 miles from Nashville by the police, and he was taken off the bus, beaten, and taken into custody. Now, there is a really great quote about why it was so important for him personally to go through the process of being arrested. Now, I'm not going to read the full quote because there are the nature of some of the words in it are not something I can say as a white person, uh, but you can look up this quote on the Wikipedia article that I will have linked in the description of the podcast. Now, this quote comes from the Washington Blade from the 1980s. In it, he discusses why it was so important that he felt he needed to be arrested, and it solidified his belief of his own importance as a gay person. This quote comes after a child had tried to reach for his necktie, a white child, and his mother had said to the effect, don't touch the end slur. And the quote goes, If I go and sit quietly at the back of that bus now, that child who was so innocent of race relationships that it was going to play with me, will have seen so many blacks go to the back and sit down quietly that is going to end up saying, they like it back there. I've never seen anybody protest it. I owed it to that child, not only to my own integrity, I owed it to that child that it should be educated to know that blacks do not want to sit in the back and therefore I should get arrested, letting all of these white people in the bus know that I did not accept that. 
It occurred to me shortly after that that it was an absolute necessity for me to declare homosexuality because if I didn't, I was part of the prejudice. I was aiding and abetting the prejudice that was a part of the effort to destroy me. And this is probably the pivotal moment where Rustin decided never to be ashamed of being openly homosexual. That is something that is said throughout all of the reading that I've done is that he was never once ashamed of being openly homosexual. After his detainment, he would be taken to the police station and then released without being charged. In 1944, he would be arrested for refusing to sign up for the draft as a conscientious objector. His Quaker upbringing, as mentioned before, made him anti-war, and so he refused. And he would spend the next two years in prison for refusing to sign up for the draft. But his activism wouldn't end while he was in prison. He actually began protesting the segregation of the housing blocks and the dining hall. Which is kind of funny to me because it, he probably became a thorn in the side of the wardens of the two prisons that he was being held in. He would end up being released in 1946 and would continue with, as I mentioned before, his activism. In 1947, the actual Freedom Rides would begin when he and George Hauser, another founding member of CORE, organized the Journey of Reconciliation. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, these Freedom Rides were to test out the 1946 Supreme Court ruling that segregation on interstate travel was illegal. Using Rustin's original ride as the blueprints for their movement forward, they had a team of 14 men divided equally by race. They would go in pairs and they would travel through the Jim Crow states in the South and were often arrested. It is important to note here that the NAACP actually opposed these rides as they thought they were too meek, which was a pretty common reaction to much of Rustin's anti-violent protesting. Rustin would actually end up being arrested on one of these rides and would serve 22 days in a chain gang in North Carolina. For those of you who don't know what a chain gang is, it's kind of almost what it sounds like. Uh, they would chain inmates together and they would be forced to do tasks like cleaning up trash, building roads, and repairing buildings, which, as you can imagine, is incredibly tough when you are chained to another inmate. As he had done with his previous jail time, Rustin used his time in the chain gang as fodder to publish a report about the chain gangs to several newspapers that actually led to the reform of the chain gang practice. Between 1948 and 1956, Rustin would be arrested numerous times in both India and Africa for protesting British occupation of India and protesting and working with the West African independence movement. He would continue to work with the organizations FOR and CORE until 1953. He would be arrested in Pasadena, California for being caught with another man in a car doing intimate acts. This was a time in American history where it was thought that being gay was a mental disorder and it was criminalized as a sex perversion. And it would be this arrest and conviction more than any other one that would stick with him and haunt the rest of his activist career. And even with this arrest and conviction, he still was open about his sexuality. He didn't let that scare him into hiding it. This brings us to the part of Rustin's life that the most knowledge is shared about. But even this information was scarce for a very long time because many of the leaders 
of the civil rights movement wanted Rustin's efforts to go unrecognized because of his sexuality. Rustin's beginnings into the uh, civil rights movement started in February of 1956, when he and his mentor Philip Rudolph would meet Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. while he was organizing the public transport boycott, which would eventually be known as the Montgomery Bus Boycott. Now, prior to meeting Rustin, King hadn't really considered nonviolent action as an option. Uh, Rustin recalled the, that the first visit, Dr. King was permitting himself and his children and his house to be protected by guns. And it was through Rustin's teachings that Dr. King began to understand how nonviolent tactics of protest could be used to his advantage and moved the movement forward in this direction. Dr. King also recognized Rustin's strengths in organizing the connections he had in his knowledge. Even knowing Rustin's sexuality and prior arrest for it, he invited him to be his personal advisor. From 1956 to 1960, he was an integral part of Dr. King's inner circle and would have several projects he was instrumental in accomplishing. In December of 1956, he would begin the formation of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that would unite many of the black leaders of the South. And in both 1958 and 1959, he, along with Rudolph, coordinated the youth marches for integrated schools. In 1960, the civil rights movement was planning a march on the Democratic National Convention because of their weak stance on racial issues. During that planning, Democratic leaders sent a black congressman to persuade Dr. King from moving forward with the march. Congressman Adam Clayton Powell sent Dr. King a letter threatening him that if he didn't stop the march, he would accuse him of having an affair with Rustin. Because of the rampant homophobia that was happening throughout the United States at the time, an accusation like this would not only have destroyed Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s reputation, it could have stopped the civil rights movement before it had even got a chance to get started. Because of this, Dr. King decided to distance himself from Rustin and moved him out of his inner circle. And this is the one and only time that it is said that Dr. King lost a battle to fear. This didn't stop Rustin from remaining active within the civil rights movement. He worked within the organization, but not within Dr. King's circle for the next three years. It wouldn't be until 1963 when Dr. King began to realize that without Rustin, the movement had began to slow and stagnate. Upon realizing this, uh, he would slowly start integrating Rustin back into his inner circle. This same year, Dr. King would assign Rustin as the deputy director of the March on Washington. But many of the civil rights leaders were adamantly opposed to this because of Rustin's sexuality and subsequent arrest because of this. They believed that it could harm the movement. So instead, the deputy director position would be given to Rustin's mentor, Philip Rudolph, and Rustin would be his assistant. This was in the hopes that... It would keep Rustin's name in the background so that the public wouldn't gain knowledge of him participating. This didn't end up working out, and many people began to recognize him for the work that he was doing within the movement. He and Rudolph, working together as a team, were able to bring together and guide the event in under two months, which when you think about it, is an insane amount of time to accomplish what they did end up accomplishing. Now, the week prior to the march, the organizers estimated that there would be maybe 90,000 people that would show up. When in reality, nearly 300,000 people attended the March on Washington and were there when Dr. Martin Luther King gave his now immortalized I Have a Dream speech. And Bayard Rustin, along with Rudolph, was the mastermind behind this event. Rustin would continue to be an activist and fight for equality for the next two decades. 
During the 1970s, he would focus his activism on economic injustices and anti-colonialism. In the 1980s, he took part in the March for the Survival of the Thai-Cambodian Border, helped found the National Emergency Coalition for Haitian Rights, and at the request of his partner, Walter, I'm going to say this wrong, but Nagel, he reluctantly joined the fight for gay liberation and AIDS education. Rustin was reluctant to take up the fight for gay liberation as he viewed sexuality as a deeply personal thing. Now, it's best described by the statement he used when he declined to contribute to the book In the Life, a Black Gay Anthology. I was not involved in the struggle for gay rights as a youth. I did not come out of the closet voluntarily. Circumstances forced me out. While I have no problem with being publicly identified as a homosexual, it would be dishonest of me to present myself as one who was in the forefront of the struggles for gay rights. I fundamentally consider sexual orientation to be a private matter, and as such, it has not been a factor which has greatly influenced my role as an activist. Even with that in mind, he still spent the last years of his life fighting for the rights of the gay community and for education on HIV and AIDS. Rustin would pass away in 1987 of a misdiagnosed perforated appendix, and after his death, much of his legacy would slowly fade from the public's knowledge, much of his work and accomplishments fading because of a combination of it being hidden by civil rights leaders during his life and the continued public discomfort of his sexuality after his passing. It really wouldn't be until 2013 that his importance was remembered by a wider audience when President Barack Obama awarded Rustin the Presidential Medal of Freedom posthumously. Bayard Rustin's importance to the civil rights movement cannot be understated. Without him, the movement may have never succeeded. But even more important than that, in my opinion, was his tireless efforts to stand for justice and equality for people who were oppressed, who had no voice to speak for themselves, all while doing this as an openly gay black man in a time in America where it was dangerous to be those things. And that is why remembering his legacy within our community is so important. And now, friends, we have reached the end of this week's podcast. So as always, I would like to remind you that you living and thriving as a member of the LGBTQ plus community is making history. So keep doing that shit. <laughs> 